Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. Lord, we're glad that everybody's here tonight that is able to be here. Praise God. A lot of sickness going around, a lot of things happening. But God doesn't take vacations and God doesn't get sick. And that's a blessing, isn't it? That means whenever we need him, he's there. And that's every day, all the time. (laughs) We need him all the time. Praise God. It is a great honor to be able to be here with you tonight and to just share some things that the Lord has shared with me. Um, Got a little bit of things I want to talk to us about first and then we'll get into our prayer part of it. But um, you can go ahead and be seated if you'd like. Um, we've we've heard some uh, pretty timely messages recently involving the, the Bible character of David, and uh, and I think that it's reminded us yet again of the fact that there are vast storehouses of knowledge in God's Word that can exist in places that we have considered mined out over the years. You know, you hear stories and you hear stories and you hear the same stories and you hear the same stories and you hear the same stories and you think you can't get anything else out of it. It's, you know, a thousand messages have been preached on it and there's nothing else in there. You've already squeezed everything out of it. You can squeeze out of it. And then God comes along and he just gives you something else. You can't, you can't squeeze everything out of it. The, the, the scripture, the word of God is just so deep and so overwhelming that we'll never mine it all out. And so, uh, having said that, I, I just have to tell you tonight that God has had me re-examining the, that very familiar story that's connected to David's rise to fame among his people. And I believe that, that God desires for us to see a side of that story that has a connection with us here at Landmark. So that's what we want to share with you uh, tonight, and then we'll get into our, our time of prayer. The story itself is uh, it's one that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And you can read the story later if you're not familiar with it, but I think most everybody here is pretty much familiar with the story of David. And as this story begins to unfold, we're told that Israel has been invaded by an army of the Philistines. And I think we've all heard of them before. And they invaded Israel down in the southern region, down in an area of the territory of Judah. And so King Saul gathers his army together, and he marches off to meet and to engage this enemy and send them back into their own land. Now these two armies encounter one another in an area called the Valley of Elah. And on either side of this valley, there was a mountain. And the Philistines, they encamped on a mountain on one side of this valley. The Israelites encamped on the mountain on the other side of the valley. So you've got one army pitched on one mountain. The other army's pitched on the other mountain. So they're staring at each other across this valley, both of them on mountains. Neither one has the advantage because they both have high ground. So 
you know, it's kind of a standoff. They're both on these, these high places. And so um, both armies could look at each other back across the valley. They could watch what was going on. They could see what, every other, what the other army was doing and, and trying to get ready for the battle that they knew was going to come at some point. And this particular engagement was going to prove to be the most unusual engagement in battle that Israel had faced under King Saul. The story unfolds by informing us of a, of a tactic that these Israelites had not faced before during any of the previous battles. They had fought against the Amorites, or against the Ammonites, all the otherites too. The, the Ammonites, they had fought against the Ammonites, and they had been victorious over the Ammonites. They had fought against the Amalekites, and they had defeated the Amalekites. And then they had even fought against these same Philistines, and they had defeated the Philistines. So this was not something that they were not used to. They had battles, and they had already fought three big battles, and they had won them all. But there was something different about this battle that they were facing. They'd even encountered uh, this, in battle, this battle once before with the Philistines, and though they had defeated them, it wasn't because the majority of Saul's army was there. It was because most of them had run away and hid. Saul had started out with 3,000 men, and he wound up with 600 because they ran away, because they were frightened because of the massive size of the army of the Philistines. And yet God had managed to use the 600 to destroy the armies of the Philistines and gave them a victory. But in this meeting of these two armies, we're told that for the space of 40 days, a certain Philistine giant whose name was Goliath was going to come down off this mountain and he boldly walked down into the valley of Elah where he would bellow out his threats and his taunts against the army of Israel. And he did it twice a day for 40 days. He didn't just do it once in a while. He did it every day, two times a day. That's 80 times that they had to listen to this behemoth come down and just rake them over the coals, call them everything but good. They endured that 80 times, listening to that, slandering them, humiliating them. And so one has to believe that listening to the degrading comments from their opponents for that number of times had to begin to take its toll upon those who were the focus of these tirades. You hear somebody down you and diss you long enough, it has an effect on you. I don't care who you are. And, and that's why we have to be careful what we tell our kids because we can be negative so much of the time and if that's what we feed into them, that's what they're going to start believing. And this giant is feeding them all this stuff that's dissing them. It's downing them. It's degrading them. It's humiliating them. And they're hearing this for 80 times, 40 days. They're hearing it. That's all they're hearing. All Goliath wanted was for the Israelites' champion to come out of hiding and meet with him in battle there in this valley while both armies watched. And the outcome of that one matchup, that one-on-one -on -one matchup, 
would determine the victor of their war. They were going to settle it like that. Mano e mano. Man to man. The winning side would become the masters over the losing side. And that was the, the great deal to stake upon the ability of any one man in Israel's army. Could you imagine having that kind of pressure on you? You got a giant out there and he's only wanting one of you to come down and do combat with him and if you lose, then that means your people are servants to them. That's a little bit of pressure. That's a little bit of pressure. No man could go up against Goliath and win. That's what their thinking was. No single man could go up against Goliath and beat him. Now, we might take a group of guys out there, and some of us won't come back, but maybe somebody will get to him eventually, but you can't do one-on-one with this guy. He's too much. It would be suicide. The risk was too great. Nobody wanted to take the challenge. I don't blame him. Now, it just so happened that on that 40th day, King Saul had decided that no one was foolish enough to take on Goliath alone, so he set into motion a plan of battle for his army, and they began to move his men out into formation to attack the Philistines. So they had been inactive for this 40 days, and all of a sudden on this 40th day, he decides we've got to get busy. We've got to do something. You know, we can't take this any longer. I'm sick of listening to him make his comments, and you guys are too. We've got to do something. We're standing around here looking like idiots. We've got we to get out there and at least pretend to be fighting. So he makes his battle plans and he gets his guys in array. Well, it also happens that on that same day, David's father, Jesse, had decided to send David to that very mountain where Israel's army was. He was to take food for his brothers and to check out how the battle had been going. Well, there hadn't been any battle yet, so that wasn't any news, but he was going to check it out. And when David arrived at the camp, he was just in time to watch the army of Israel march out to do battle with the Philistines. And he even got to cheer them on as they marched out. You know, he was all excited about it. This, he's getting to watch the battle take place. He thought he's missed it all, but he's getting to get in there and watch, the, watch his people fight. What an exciting thing, man. He was, he was all pumped up. He just wanted to see them really give it to the old Philistines, you know. So David gets so excited that he runs after the army and he enters into its ranks and he's looking around trying to find his brothers. He wants to, he wants to chat them up, man. He's, he's excited. He wants to get in there and find out, get the feel of, of war and all this stuff. You know, he's a, he's a kid. He's, he's excited about all this. And so he gets in, he finds his brothers and he begins to talk to them about the battle and the, he's all excited about it. He just wishes he could get in there and do it too, you know, and all this is going on. And... As it was that he was walking with his brothers and talking to them and asking them questions, looking across this valley and watched as the enemy began to advance toward them. The enemy's coming down their side of the mountain. They're going down their side of the mountain. They're going to meet in the valley of Elah and they're going to fight. Then suddenly as these armies stepped out into the valley, there was this great commotion that took place in the Philistine army. Soldiers were sent flying as this great giant of a warrior bulldozed his way up to the front of his army. He's knocking guys out of the way, slinging them left and right. He's moving through the ranks and he's moving right out there to the very front of the army. You can't miss the guy. 
And he gets out to the front of the army before anything is engaged. No, nobody's, nobody's fired the first shot yet. And he gets out there and he stands up right out in front, points his spear at Israel's faces and began to curse them and spew his humiliating garbage out upon Israel again. This one man had stepped out all alone in front of the advancing enemy and dared to face him down. One guy. And he stops the army of Israel. One man. Stops them dead in their tracks. I mean, they had been, they were going forth until he stepped out. And buddy, it came to a stop. All of a sudden, whoa, hold on, wait a minute. Here's the giant. His large voice booms out across the valley as he defied Israel and Jehovah. He shamed him, he taunted him, and then he presented his challenge one more time to him. And this was all too much for the men of Saul's army. The story tells us that Israel turned around and ran back up the mountain. They didn't even... Draw their swords. They haven't even engaged in battle. They just turned around and ran. One guy did that to them. They were ready to take on the army, but not, not Goliath. He's one man. We'll take on the army, but we ain't going to fight him. If you guys leave him out of it, we'll fight you, but we ain't fighting him. How could one guy do that? He's just one guy. They ran back not because they were outnumbered. They didn't run because the Philistines had horses and chariots. They weren't afraid of them. They ran because of the fear that that one man among their enemy had struck them with over the course of those 40 days. The rest of the army was no problem. They defeated the army before, but Goliath hadn't been there. Now, this guy had gotten them so scared They, weren't, well, they, they were done fighting. They hadn't even started and they were done. We have a tendency to look at this point in the story and we shake our heads and we say, come on guys, it's just one man. It's just one man. He's big, but he's only one man, right? Yeah, he's, the only, he's only one man. So in all fairness... We need to better understand what it was that Israel's army saw that day out on the battlefield. Now, Goliath himself was a gigantic man whose height was said to be nine feet, nine inches tall. How many of you have ever seen the statue of Robert Wadlow up in Alton? Add 10 inches onto that. He's 10 inches taller than Robert Wadlow. That's a big guy. Ten inches taller. For an average height person like myself, that's big. That's big. He would come up about halfway up, halfway up right that wall right there. That's where he would come. 
And not only was Goliath a giant, it's been estimated that he could have weighed close to 600 pounds. That's pretty big. Robert Wadlow weighed about 450 pounds. But he was bone, skin and bones. This guy was not skin and bones. And we'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here as we go on. This man that faced down an army was covered from head to foot with armor. He wasn't standing out there in his street clothes, not in a suit, not in a tie. He was armed for war. There wasn't one spot on his body that wasn't covered by armor. He had a bronze helmet that covered his enormous head. He wore a coat of mail upon his upper body that was said to weigh 125 pounds. How would you like to try to walk around with 125 pounds? That's just his coat of mail. That's not including everything else. He had a brass breastplate that went over the chain mail to protect his vital organs. So you had to get through the brass breastplate through the chain mail to even get into any of his vitals. And to protect his legs, his tree trunks for legs, I should say, he had brass greaves or leg shields. So if you thought about taking out his legs, you were going to have to deal with that. And on top of that, he also was equipped with a body shield that could be raised to cover his head and his upper torso. So the only thing left would have been his legs. But they were covered too. Who knows how much all that could have weighed. This giant was a virtual fortress on legs. That sounds pretty impressive to me. You see that guy standing out there, that's pretty impressive. But see, that's all just the defensive side. That's just his, his protection. That's just his protection. Listen to what he brought to the, to the party here. His offensive gear. He carried a sword which has been estimated by professionals to have weighed somewhere around 12 pounds when the average weight for a normal sword was two and a half. Twelve pounds. I brought something here with me tonight. And you can, you can pick this up if you want to, just to get a feel for this. This is just a piece of iron. This piece of iron weighs seven pounds. So you'd almost have to double the weight of this, and that would be the weight of his sword. Anybody want to feel this? Feel that. Double that. How would you like to sling that around all day? Yeah. Seven pounds is heavy. That's five pounds heavier than what they were wielding. His was almost twice that. But he wielded that around like it was nothing. David would have had to have struggled with the sword when he cut his head off. 12 pounds for the sword. That's his sword. Then, 
We're told that Goliath was equipped with a spear whose shaft, it is believed, was around 12 feet long and two inches in diameter. Okay, his spear would have been 12 feet long, so you couldn't have gotten within 12 feet of him before he could have got you. So there's no getting in close to him. His spear, now this is just one of my sticks I've got here, but this is, right up here is two inches. That's the size of it. Two inches around right up here at the top. This is six feet. Double the size of this. And again, feel the weight of this. This is just six feet, and it's not even a full true two inches. Double that. He handles his spear with one hand. We couldn't handle it with two. We couldn't handle it with three if we had three hands. That's his spear. You guys can feel this later if you want to, but this, I'm telling you, this is heavy, and this is nothing. It's nothing compared to what he had. Not only did he have, not only did he have his spear that's 12 feet long, the tip of it, the end of it, had an iron spearhead that was formed in a sharp point and sharpened. The spearhead weighed 15 pounds. That's heavier than the sword. And this guy's out there holding this spear and moving it around like it's nothing. He's not a skin and bones. We're talking about a guy that's beefy. This guy could probably take a tree down. Seriously. This, I'm telling you, this was a massive dude. I wouldn't want to face him down. I don't care how well trained I was. I wouldn't want to tackle the guy. This, hopefully we're beginning to get the picture. When, when it came to Goliath, there seemed to be just no weakness to exploit. He had no weakness. There was no place of access. There was no vulnerability to strike at. Not for this fighting machine. Where was his weak point? Good luck finding it. All of this mountain of a warrior taken together, along with the fact that he was highly trained and he was extremely skilled, he was a killing machine. That would have been enough to have turned most men's courage to water. I don't blame the guys for not wanting to face him. I'm sorry, but I don't. I understand completely what they're seeing. I see that. I understand that. I sympathize with them. And I believe that it was Goliath's total package that had generated an image that had helped to turn him into such a successful champion. He had the power to intimidate his enemies. Intimidation. He didn't even have to go out and fight. All he had to do was show up. And nobody wanted to take him on. 
That's intimidation. He could do whatever he wanted to do and ain't nobody going to stop him. That's intimidation. He was intimidating. He had the power to intimidate his enemies. As, as the champion, he had never been defeated in battle. And I believe that was in large part due to the fact that he was so imposing that he instilled fear in everybody that he faced. The battle was over before it ever started. They were so scared of the guy, he had already won in their minds. There's no beating this guy. Hey, I'll just lay down and I'm done. I'm not even trying because there's no hope. There's no chance. It's over. This intimidating mountain of a warrior had become the Philistines' secret weapon. They were trying it out on the Israelites, this secret weapon. And so far, it had proven extremely effective throughout that 40 days that they had employed it. Their secret weapon was working. It was working. But that was about to change. That was about to change. I'm sure you all remember reading or hearing about God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and leading them to the doorstep of the promised land, right? What had it been that had prevented them from entering the land at that time? Giants. Intimidation. How long had it been then from the time that they were supposed to enter the land that, that how long had it passed before they were actually able to enter the land? Forty years. There's that number again. Giants, intimidation, 40 years, 40 days. You see in a parallel? Intimidation from giants. So here's what I see happening in this story. God's people are again falling victim to intimidation to these Philistines. So God provides a learning situation for Israel to be a part of. The Israelites had wandered around in their wilderness of unbelief for 40 years. And here God was allowing these Israelites to do Something that was very similar. They got the chance to wallow around in their own wilderness battle of unbelief for 40 days. One day for each year. Before God would step in and deliver them from their intimidation. It took the original crew 40 years to get delivered from theirs, but God was going to speed up the process with this group. 40 days. I'm giving you 40 days and then your days of intimidation are over. Thank God. Thank God. My papers are not cooperating here. So God's going to take care of it. What the enemy doesn't know yet and what Israel doesn't know yet is that God has a secret weapon of his own. 
and he's preparing to unleash it in the most unlikely of ways. I'm telling you, God's got some secret weapons, folks. He's got some things he's held back, but he's ready to use them when the time comes in the most unlikely of ways. Do you believe that David had just happened to show up in Israel's camp on that 40th day as a result of chance? Hmm. Was it just good luck on the part of Israel that had placed him where he was, sorely needed? No, we all know that. That whole thing had been scripted by the hand of God to teach a lesson to some people who truly needed to learn it. I believe God had brought the Philistines into their land because God was going to teach them a lesson. The last time they faced the Philistines, they ran away from it because they were intimidated. He's going to bring them back to that same point. He's going to make him take the same test again. How many of you know when you, with God, you'll keep taking tests until you pass them? There's no free rides in God. You're not moving to the next level or the next stage, buddy, until you pass the test where you're at. He'll keep giving you those same tests, different measures, different ways, but it's going to be the same test and it's going to keep coming until you pass it. Test number one, here it comes. They didn't pass. Test number two, here it comes. God's going to teach them a lesson. He's going to help them learn this time. So David got there. He got there at the perfect time to see with his own eyes and to hear with his own ears the things that the army of God had faced for quite a while now. The amazing thing was David had a completely different take on what was going on. David didn't see things the way the army saw it. David didn't see the event in the same format. David saw something completely different. It fired him up. The other guys were cowering in fear and David's all fired up. He's mad. I can't believe you guys. This is stopping you? Have you seen the guy? David, I mean, he's, he's fired up. He's ready to go. He blurts out to some of the men standing around him, well, if nobody else is going to take care of the situation, I'm willing to do it. This is a kid. He's not even as tall as me. He's a kid. Now, granted, kids can feel like they can take on the world. And sometimes they're just stupid in that. But they do believe they can take on the world and that they're indestructible and nothing's going to get to them. This was different. This wasn't David being a stupid kid. He was feeling something inside of him that was generating this, uh, this angst inside against the enemy who had put his people to shame. He said, I'm not putting up with this. Is there not a cause? Isn't there a reason to do something about this? Come on, guys. Good grief. I'm a shepherd. I'm not one of you guys, but I'm not afraid of the dude. I'll kill him. I'll take him on. 
Well, his mouth got him in trouble. Because the next thing you know, where does David wind up? He winds up in Saul's tent, doesn't he? It lands him in the presence of King Saul. And David told Saul, don't let any of the men of God's army be afraid of that old gas bag out there. Don't let him be afraid of him. I'll fight him. He doesn't scare me. And just as it was in that previous story of Israel's lack of confidence in the face of giants, once again, we find unbelievers attempting to talk the believers out of their faith and confidence. The people, they tried to tell Jacob, Joshua and Caleb, we can't take them. And they say, we can take it. We can do this. Come on, guys. We, got the, we can do it. And they're trying to be talked out of it. And here you come along, and it's the same old story. You got this guy of faith. He says, man, we can do this. We can conquer that beast out there. He's nothing. And Saul pulls him aside and said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're insane. You're insane. The unbelievers trying to talk the believers out of their faith and out of their confidence. And this time, it's the leader. The guy who's supposed to be, uh, you know, pushing them on to victory and, and giving them these great speeches that are going to build their confidence. He said, dude, you can't win. None of us can. This is coming from the leader. Not a very great confidence builder. And he goes on. He, he tells him, David, you can't go out and defeat that, defeat that giant. First off, you're just a kid. You're a boy. What do you know about warfare? And secondly, you've never fought as a soldier against an enemy. You're not even qualified. How does he know if he's qualified or not? He's qualified and he's not doing it. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. Why ain't he out there fighting a giant? I'm just saying. That guy that you'd be facing is a giant who's been trained since he was a kid how to kill. You don't stand a chance. And here he is. He's trying to just bring David down. Try to suck all the, all the confidence out of him that he can. David ain't having it. Try as he might, Saul was not able to put out the fire that burned inside of David. Thank God. Instead, it was that fire of faith in him that began to eat away at Saul's unbelief. He was gaining ground on Saul. He's turning unbelief into faith. Now that's doing something, folks. Usually it's the other way around. The unbelief sucks the faith out of you, but here's, here is David putting faith into an unbeliever. Not easy. Just as David's music skill had chased away the darkness from Saul's troubled mind so many times before, he explained to the king that though he might be young, he was not inexperienced. 
He already had to face overwhelming odds against a lion and a bear in a fight for his own life. I believe God had put the lion and the bear in his path for such a time as this. That whole thing was for this. It was. He was ready. David's uncompromising and unwavering faith so impressed King Saul that when David told him that that beast who stands out there in defiance of God is nothing more than those things that I have already faced and conquered. I don't fear him like I didn't fear them. I'm not afraid. I'm telling you, I'm not afraid. Thank God. David said, believe me, he's going to end up the same way that they did. And with that, Saul at last consented and told David he could go out and face Goliath's challenge. All right, all right. I'm beginning to believe you, David. I'm beginning to believe his faith is rising a little bit. I'm beginning to believe that you can do this. But he's still not completely convinced that David's chances are of him winning. So he wants to improve David's chances. So Saul insists that David be protected by wearing his armor. You've got to put on this armor to protect yourself, David. A soldier should look like a soldier going into battle. So David tries to appease the king by going along with his wishes. But in the end, he had needed to assure Saul that he had all the help and all the protection that he needed to ensure his victory over Goliath. He already had that. I wasn't wearing armor when I went out against the lion and the bear. And I've already told you that this, this thing out there is nothing more to me than that. I don't need any of your protection. I don't need what you're trying to put on me. And with that, David unburdened himself of the constraints that Saul had tried to place upon him. And we're going to find people in our lives that are going to try to constrain us with their thinking of how something has to go. When in your heart, you know what God has told you. But there's going to be people going to try to constrain you and say, you know what, I don't feel comfortable with you doing it that way. Well, you know what? God's the one that told me to do it. God's got me here. Let, just let me go. Just let me go. Sink or swim, let me go. So he picked up his staff. He grabbed his sling and he walks out of the king's tent to silence that obnoxious intimidation once and for all. David only paused long enough on his path through the battle to pick up a few stones that he's going to use as his weapons and then he hurried on into the valley that was going to decide not only his fate but the fate of everyone that was assembled there that day. Did you realize that? Everybody's fate that was there was going to depend on what David did. Not Goliath. What David did. That was going to determine the outcome of everybody's life. From that point on, from that moment. Let's take a shift 
over to Goliath. He saw this young kid moving swiftly down the mountain facing him. And he couldn't believe what he was looking at. The kid wasn't big. The kid had no armor. The kid had no shield. The kid had no sword. The kid had no spear. What was he going to use to kill him with? What was he going to use to fight him with? This wasn't even the soldier who had, who had come up. The guy, the, this kid looks like a shepherd. They're sending the shepherd out to do battle with me, the champion of the Philistines? Come on, guys. It's a joke. He railed against David, daring to come out in pretense of doing battle with him. There was not going to be any honor in him killing David. The worst soldier in the Philistine army could come out there and take him down with one blow. Come on, guys. Uh, what is this? This is humiliating to me. Send me out a man, not a boy. I said a man. And you're sending me a boy? That just got all over Goliath. Where was the honor in killing a kid that anybody could kill? There's no honor in that. And so Goliath was incensed by this charade and he hurled, he hurled every insult he could think at David, including telling him that he was going to make mincemeat out of him. Going to tell him what he was going to do to him. Then it was David's turn to make a reply. He told Goliath, you come to me all decked out in your armor, feeling safe and secure and confident in what you know. I come to you as you see me. Yet I come to you more confident than you because I come in the name of the great God of gods whom you have dared to defy. I don't need anything else to take you down but him. That's all I got and that's all I need, buddy. You're going down. I will strike the telling blow against you. I will sever your head from your body. And listen to this. David doesn't stop there. If you read that, he goes on and he says, and just so you know, you and your army, once I have finished with you, I'm going to go after your re the rest of the army. I ain't stopping with you, pal. This guy was on fire. He was lit up. And David meant it. He wasn't just blowing smoke. As soon as he finished Goliath, he was going to tear into the army. He was going to go after those guys. The zeal of the Lord was all over the guy. David said, I could run through a troop leap over a wall. He was feeling it that day. He was. He was feeling it. Now that response from David to Goliath wasn't what Goliath was used to hearing. 
Most of the time, it was silence from the other guy. There was no trash talk coming out of the other guy. He, he wasn't going to say, I'm going to come over there and I'm just going to do this and that to you. The other guy said, I'm not even trying to say anything against you. I, I know this already over before I ever get started. David, he just mouths right back to him. He just gives it right back, dishes it right back to him. He wasn't used to that response. He was used to, and what he was expecting to see from David was this kid getting scared and fear just gripping David and, and all of a sudden he just loses it and he turns around and runs. He wasn't expecting that from this kid. Instead, he found an unshakable and a confident young man and that angered him all the more. This kid had no chance, this arrogant little bug. His mouth is about to get him squashed, so the match is on. Get ready, buddy, to defend yourself because I'm coming after you. He didn't have to wait for David. David came after him. David took off running and it had taken longer for the two combatants to exchange insults than the actual battle itself was going to take. It was over that quick. It was over in the blink of an eye. Talk about being anticlimactic. That's exactly what it was, man. It was over. With one motion and in one instant, the stone had left the sling of David like a bullet and then the next, Goliath had gone down like a rag doll. He laid unconscious on the ground, so David hurried over to this huge mound of, of flesh, climbed up on top, drew out the sword of Goliath and used it to chop his head off. And in that instant, those who had arrived on Israel's doorstep and brought intimidation with them had in a moment of time managed to find themselves the intimidated. If a boy with a stick and a sling can destroy our champion who's never been defeated, what chance do we have against these, this army? They turned around they ran back up the hill to try to get away from the, from the army of God. The intimidated, the intimidator had become uh, the intimidated. That is an awesome story. And I think all of us would have to agree that David... The hero is the main character of this story. But what if I were to tell you that's not true? What if I were to tell you that David's not the main character in this story? In fact, it's our hero who actually introduces us to the one who really is the main character. Because David tells us who it is that's going to give him the power to do what he's going to do. That's the real main character of the story. The Lord or Jehovah God, that was the one that was the main character of the story. In every battle that the Israelites won, it was God who was the main character in that story. And in every battle that Israel lost, 
It was because God was not the main character in that story. Where do we put God? David had made God the main character in his life's story. That's why he was never intimidated. You'll never find David intimidated by any enemy he faced. Never. It's never recorded. David was never afraid to fight. It didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter what the odds were. He was never afraid to fight. Why? Because he knew he wasn't the main character. He knew it wasn't up to him. The main character in the story, that's the one who's going to pull it off. That's why David had succeeded at the destruction of Israel's intimidators when no one else had been able to do so. Because he had made God the main character in the story of his life. And he kept him there. We find ourselves at times just like uh, that army of Israel did facing their giant. We allow ourselves to begin to believe all that we see and all that we hear our circumstances uh, speaking into our lives. And when we choose to accept it, we are reduced to being seduced into becoming intimidated by it. Then once intimidation sets in, fear follows right on its heels. And faith is neutralized and hope is steadily eaten away. That's why intimidation is such a bad thing. It's such a horrible thing. It takes a great toll in our lives. And today all of us will find out that, uh, that in life we're going to face intimidation just about everywhere we look. Pretty much everywhere, every place we look. If we determine that God is going to be the main character in the story of our lives, then those intimidators are going to hold no power over us. And just as David told Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. David didn't even call him a giant. He didn't even refer to him as a giant. He said, him, that thing out there. He's not even worth mentioning. Don't let Israel's heart be fearful because of him. He's just another beast to be disposed of. And we can get so focused on what appears to be insurmountable that we forget who our God is. His, he's the main character, not us, and certainly not our enemy. And that's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That word strengthen means to enable through empowerment. Christ enables us through empowerment. He empowers us to succeed. He's the main character of our story. He needs to become that main character of our life story. Intimidation is something that we're all acquainted with and all of us have experienced it in one form or another. 
You realize that what we call peer pressure is really nothing more than a form of intimidation? It is. It's the attempt by others to get people to conform to their desires through the use of intimidation. Pressure. Force. Bullying. That's the act of making people conform to the bully's wishes through intimidation. We can find intimidation in our schools. We can find intimidation on our jobs. There's intimidation in the medical profession. You can find intimidation on the internet. Far too often you can find intimidation at home. We can also find intimidation happening in churches. The last place it should be happening, but it does happen in churches. People using God's word as a hammer to beat people down and make them do what they want them to do. That's intimidation. And as a church, we can face intimidating circumstances that can neutralize our faith and that can eat away at our hope. We can become intimidated by our seeming inadequacies in relationship to the task that we have before us. There's so many that need so much. People need healing. It seems like we're always praying for people to be healed. There's not enough of us, is there? There's not enough to go around. Too many needs. People who need salvation. A world full. People with family issues. So many with addictions. We have so many things that we need to be trying to minister to and help with, and yet we are so few. It can become intimidating. The task is too great. We can't do it. No, we can't do it. Without Christ, who can help us do all things. And when we forget that, folks, <laughs> we will not be successful. When we try to do it on our own, when we try to make it happen with programs or whatever else we do, and I'm not knocking programs, don't get me wrong, but when we try to substitute that instead of God, it's never going to work. It won't work. It won't work. We can think, well, we don't have the staff, we don't have the finances, we don't have the training, and you can make up the list and go on and on and on. It, it limits us to what we'd like to be able to do for our community and for individuals and for families and for, for the needs of those around us. It can loom over us like something giant that taunts us. I just want us to make sure that God is the main character of our story as Landmark Worship Center. We've got to make him the main character in our story so that everything we do, he's at the heart of it. We can't forget him. We can't forget him. And so I want us to pray tonight.
that if we're feeling that intimidation as a church body, looking at the size of the congregation in relationship to the size of the task that God has called us to, uh, it can be daunting. It can generate fear, anxiety, a lot of things. But I want us to pray tonight that God would help us to see it in the correct format, to see it through his eyes, to see it with him being the central character, where the focus is on him and our ability to do it through him. Because that's the only way we will accomplish it, is through him. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Jesus, tonight as we come to you, we are so thankful that you have already prepared that secret weapon for us. You've got something in the wings already set for us, God. And if we can just hang on and continue to believe and not let unbelievers tear us down in our faith and not let those around us, God, in, in, in the world out there talking about things, well, you can't do it. It, it can't be done. It's, it's not going to happen. It'll never take place. God, help us to tune out the naysayers. Help us to tune out those who don't believe. Help us to tune out those who don't agree with the concepts that you have placed in our hearts, that we can do it, that it can be done, that we can minister to the people of this city, that we can make a difference in this community, that as landmark, God, we can make a difference, hallelujah, because you are the central focus. You are the main character, God, in all of this. Hallelujah, and it's gonna be you who equips us. It's gonna be you who causes us, God, to be able to do what we need to do if we continue to believe, if we continue to hold on to that vision and that promise, God, we can see it come to pass. We will see it come to pass. We will see it happen, God. Hallelujah. I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, no longer find ourselves intimidated by the things that we can't control, by the things that are beyond our scope of understanding. And, and God, help us not to look at the things that seem to be so daunting and to see them as that, as daunting and as, and as uh, restrictive to us and uh, uh, keeping us from being able to accomplish what we need to accomplish. But instead, turn our attention, God, in our hearts like David did to see we are more than conquerors. We can do more than we think. We can do more than we can even understand or know, God. If our confidence is unshakable in you, if our faith and our trust, God, is unmovable in you, because you are central to us. You are the key to us. You are the most prominent thing in our lives, God. The most important thing, Jesus, to us. You matter more to us than anything else. And it's going to be you, Jesus, who's going to take us through. It's going to be you who sees to it, God, that we're going to accomplish great things in you. Hallelujah. Not for our glory, but that you can be glorified in it, that your name can be magnified and spread across the world and that people can see the glory of God and rejoice in that and find the victory in that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let your people, God, tonight have a, have a breath of freedom from the intimidation, Jesus, to be delivered from it, God, not to have it anymore in our hearts or lives, God, as we work to do your will and work to do 
what you have called us to do, Jesus. Help us, God, to see that. Hallelujah. To accept that challenge, God, with, with all the zeal in our heart. To do it, God. And to do it, Lord Jesus, with all the confidence and trust. In your name we pray tonight. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for your people, God. Thank you, God, for speaking this to our hearts tonight. Let it, let it resonate with us, God. Not just for tonight, but God, let it continue to resonate in our hearts in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. Help it, God, to be re remembered in our hearts and be reminded of it, God. Hallelujah. That we can do it, God. Hallelujah. We can do it in you, Jesus Christ. We can do it in you, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you for it, Jesus. Thank you for it, God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Pastor, did you want to? Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. That Bible study pretty well sums it up. And as we look at intimidation, we've dealt with it tonight. We dealt with it in prayer, and we have bound it in the name of Jesus. But here's the thing about it. It's not something that just happens one time. We've got to continue to put intimidation in its place. Amen? And what a, what a tremendous um, lesson in the Word of God, because intimidation holds us back from winning souls. It holds us back from operating in the gifts of the Spirit. It holds us back from uh, praying for the sick and they recover. It, it holds us back from praying for those that need the Holy Ghost and they receive it. it. It holds us back, but we have dealt with it tonight and that's how you deal with it. Building a relationship with the Lord, walking with him. A matter of fact, um, uh, you serve what you fear. And in this story, as Brother Ayers was talking about this and teaching on this, you serve what you fear. So the, the, um, the armies of Israel were serving the armies of the Philistines because they feared them and serving Goliath because they feared them. And the thing about uh, David, he feared God. He was serving God. So he had a relationship with the Lord. And how you deal with intimidation is what we've done tonight, but also in our relationship and our walk with God every day. Because when we, when we talk about fear of the Lord, we're not talking about, oh, I'm just afraid of God. And that means we don't want to get near him. No, it means I fear him because I love him and I'm going to serve him and I'm going to walk with him and I'm going to live for him and I'm going to be faithful to him. And we serve what we fear. And um, as you walk with God, that, that uh, intimidation just is pushed aside because that's, that's really what come down to David's life. He served God and he lived for God every day. And intimidation was thrown out the window because he trusted in the Lord. So what we must do as a church body for us to get to the next levels in God is to keep intimidation in its place because God can do so much greater than anything we can ever even imagine or whatever he can even come against. 
God is, is, is more powerful than anything. So we put our confidence in him and as we walk with him and build a relationship with him, intimidation is not going to be a factor anymore. So we're going to operate in the gifts. So I'm going to, I want us to pray. Uh, we, we, have, we have prayed against intimidation, but I would like for us to pray tonight and release the giftings of God and anointing and dominion that God has given us. Uh, we bound intimidation, but let's release that power of anointing and dominion and a, and a clear view of God's got it. He's got our backs. He's taking care of it. Let's release that tonight. In Jesus' name, God, I release the power of